Good morning. This is John Hulsman, and welcome to our weekly Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new era we find ourselves in. And today we're going to look at where we are in Ukraine from a broader perspective, the one that really matters. Again, one of the things I hope we've done in these podcasts is rip the curtain beneath the day-to-day headlines. The news provides you at best when it's unbiased, which is rarely with a fruit fly-like view of where we are, or at best, a point in a pointless Surat painting. What we want to do with political risk is take a step back and see what that painting is, and say that's a painting of a woman by a lake by Mr. Surat. Uh, and that doesn't happen with the press. And I speak as a guy who writes news articles almost every single day, uh, as we say at and the firm, the sun never sets on my newspaper writing, uh, which is literally the case. And there's value in getting that right, but we have to, if we're really going to do well, look beneath the curtain at what's going on in the medium and the long run, particularly the medium run. The long run is history. Tomorrow is the news. The medium run is where political risk lives. And over the medium run, I think we're going to see that Western unity over Ukraine will prove increasingly fragile and fleeting. And that's not because anybody's out to get anybody else. That's simply because... Put keeping together an alliance as huge, cumbersome, and complicated as the West, with all these areas having very different interests, is hard to do. And I think things will revert to form. Before the war, you had the world dividing into a superpower contest between the United States and China, which still remains the name of the game in the new era. And on one side, you had, for their own interest-based reasons, the United States, along with great powers, Uh, Japan and India and the English-speaking Anglosphere, firmly in one camp, China in the other, and then two great powers sort of in the middle. You had the EU fluctuating between a neutralist independent line, symbolized by French Gaulism of Emmanuel Macron, and the mercantilist isolationism of Angela Merkel. Uh, You had them oscillating between a pro-American and a neutralist position, The Germans would always say, look, we get our energy from Russia and we do our trading with China. And so there are going to be limits to how much we're going to help you strategically. And on the other hand, you had Russia that oscillated between a pro-Chinese line and going its own way based on great Russian nationalism. And the problem from Russia and China getting closer together was what I call the Batman problem, that one of them would have to be Robin that one one of either China or Russia would have to be subordinate. And this broke down the Sino-Soviet pact of the Cold War era, that Mao was perfectly content to be Robin to to Stalin's Batman, but when Stalin died, he was not prepared to be second fiddle to whichever one of the pygmies emerged between Beria and uh, Khrushchev. And in the end, it was Khrushchev. And he wasn't prepared to be second fiddle to Khrushchev, And so that alliance broke down. And the the same problem was brewing before the war between Russia and China, that obviously China would be the dominant force if that were a close alliance, just as obviously Putin was popular in Russia precisely because he was a proponent of great Russian nationalism, which doesn't lend itself to being second banana to anybody. And so the problem in both cases, was that there was an oscillation that, yes, the EU was within the American orbit, but a good long ways out and also had these autonomous tendencies. And the Russians, for the in, in an opposite mirror image way, 
had the same issue based on the Batman problem with China. Now, that was a constellation of forces that suited the United States greatly. But since the war, this has all changed. There have been three basic movements away from where we were. First, you have India move to a more neutralist position globally, uh, in line with the rest of the developing world. And we've talked about this before, that the developing world is far less pro-Ukrainian and pro-Western and pro-American um, than is the great power situation. So at the regional power level, you see Mexico, you see Brazil, you see pretty much everyone in Africa, you see India, you see China, you see Indonesia, all studiously neutral, India being neutral because it had long-standing ties with Russia through the Cold War, despite being theoretically non-aligned, it certainly tilted toward Moscow. So those ties have persevered after the end of the Cold War, that Russia remains the largest supplier of Indian imports in terms of arms, Although the United States, Israel, and France have made inroads, Russia is still number one. So that's important. And in energy-starved India, seeing that Russia is in trouble in terms of having long-term supply with the Europeans, senses a chance to get bargain basement energy locked in. And for all these reasons, India, for its own national interests, has remained neutral. And so this has been a major change. But the other change is because Russia has done so badly in the war, is now an international pariah, and has unified the Western world against it, is now firmly, firmly Robin to China's Batman. It's now firmly within the Chinese orbit. Um, on the other hand, Europe, having awoken at last from its long winter's nap of pretending history is over, it has moved much more firmly into the American camp, seeing that indeed war still does happen on the European continent, having an army is not an option, and thinking geostrategically is a necessity. And all these things have moved them back into the American camp. So at present, you have a new lineup with India increasingly in the middle, tilting toward America, but it being oscillating between neutralism and a pro-American tie. It's pro-American because regionally both countries fear China and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Certainly it's tilting toward America in the quad and in the Indo-Pacific in general, but more globally, it's neutral, so it's oscillating between these two positions. By the way, that can't that contradiction can't last forever, but it's it's what's happening now. You have Russia firmly in the Chinese camp, and you have the EU much more firmly in the American camp. And and worse from a Russian point of view, they've managed to wake up the Germans to actually spend some money on defense, up from 1.5 to 2%, and a hundred billion euro has been put forward by the heretofore reticent Schultz, who was a useful idiot. And, and Angela Merkel's useful idiot cabinets that supported Russia with natural gas payments for all these years. Now he's woken up and is willing to spend an extra 100 billion euro on keeping weaponry up to date. And let's remember, at present, Germany, the German army has been run down to a force that my football team could take from America. They have about three days worth of ammunition for hard fighting. That's not an exaggeration. That's the truth. So they're building from almost scratch, but they have the wherewithal to do that, certainly, as the largest economy in Europe. And so that's where we are. And of course, from an American point of view, this is great news. You would trade Russia for the EU every day of the week, that the EU is one of the three great markets of the world, along with the United States and China. So this is a great trade to make from an American point of view. Isn't this nifty? We trade a, a fading, militarily incompetent, sclerotic, demographically moribund, utterly corrupt uh, Russia, uh, which has a GDP smaller than that slightly or the same size as that of Texas, 
uh, for the EU, which has one of the three greatest markets in the world, full of highly educated people who are willing to do FDI around the world. And this is a great trade. And that is now going to spend some money on defense. So that all seems great. And that's where we are now. But this seems unlikely to continue. I think it far more likely as a headline that after the Ukraine war ends, and even in the ending of the Ukraine war, Europe goes back to its position before the war, which is one of a mix of neutralism, of going its own way, and of being pro-American, that it oscillates between these two positions, never adopting one or the other, but veering between these two positions. Why do I think that this unity will prove fleeting? It's simply because the more you look at the Ukraine war, the less the interests between Europe and the United States line up well. And let's look at what's happened up to now. Up to now, everybody could be in favor of giving weaponry to the Ukraine. At the beginning, nobody thought that Ukraine would make a fight of it. The, the Russians thought they would take Kiev in two days and all of Ukraine in two weeks. Um, that's how confident they were. And the American CIA and the $50 billion U.S. intelligence budget, which has been woefully misspent now for a very long time, as we've seen after failure after failure, the Ghani government in Afghanistan being only the, most, the latest and most egregious example. Uh, but we see clearly that they failed. Again, they, they offered Zelensky a way out. They were going to extract him so that he could form a government in exile. And famously, Zelensky said, guys, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And to the surprise of the American intelligence community, the Ukrainians have made a heroic and very effective fight of it and have seen off the Russian blitzkrieg, which was phase one, and are in the process right now of seeing off phase two, the pincer movement in the Donbass, which has already failed because the northern aspects of the pincer around Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, have been thrown back. And indeed, the Russian troops are all the way back to the Russian border. The Ukrainians have done so well there. The Russians have done better in the south, finally taking Mariupol, and so there is indeed a land bridge connecting Rostov-on-Don and Russia through the eastern, the Russian-speaking eastern provinces of the Donbass, along Mariupol and the Sea of Azov, down to Crimea, and that this is all now a contiguous Russian area. Far-flung, hard for them to control, seems almost impossible for them to advance beyond it, but they've made pretty good ground in the south, even as the pincer has fallen apart in the Donbass. And in fact, it now seems that rather than doing the pincer movement, which was already less of an option and less ambitious than taking the whole country, that now that the Russians seem to be settling for just taking Luhansk, which was a Russian-speaking province they controlled 90% of before the war started. To, it's housekeeping to do the last 10%. And Donetsk, the next, next province along, well, they might make some inroads there and they might not. But this is housekeeping. This is minor tactical gains now that they've given up any hope of strategic gain here. But up to now, given that that's the state of play on the battlefield, everybody can be in favor of this. Japan, the Anglosphere countries, which have rallied heroically. This has been the best thing and the clearest thing Boris Johnson has done. But also Japan, also Australia, Canada have all been lockstep behind the United States in the usual Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid way. But so have the EU. The EU has woken up, and after an awful lot of prodding, the Germans have given significant weaponry to the Ukrainians, including artillery, which is good. They've agreed to buy to supply other Eastern Europeans so that they can then release their outmoded Soviet gear, which works perfectly for the Ukrainians, to them. And they've agreed down the road to spend some money on reconstructing the country. 
So this is all great. Macron has been more reticent, but the French have vocally been entirely with everyone because up to now it's been all hands on deck. Let's throw the Ukrainians everything we can so they can defend themselves. And this is a political position that everybody in the West can be in favor of and has been and can gravitate to as a policy. So the strategic unity is backed up by a policy that every single portion of the West, the U.S., the Anglosphere, the Japanese, and the EU can all get behind. But what happens when that situation changes, when the policy has to change because the situation changes? In other words, what happens when the Ukrainians start winning? Because now having received weaponry, the Ukrainians are confident they can limit further Russian advances in the Donbass. They can limit further Russian advances beyond Crimea, that the Russians have gone about as far as they can and now supply with artillery and tanks and wherewithal and real-time American intelligence that they can move back and actually go on the offensive. Up to now, the Ukrainians can't really go on the offensive. All they can do defensively is ably defend their country, limit Russian gains. But the Ukrainians are confident that at some point between June and August of this year, they might be able to actually go on to the offensive and retake territory. Now, originally, the Ukrainian war aims were simply to move everything back to where it was before the war, to the 2014 boundary, with Crimea firmly in the Russian pocket, and the Donbass divided with 90% of Luhansk being controlled by the Russians and Russian-speaking separatists, a good chunk of Donetsk being controlled there, those pre-war boundaries. But now with the Ukrainians seeing victory and incredibly possible, their war aims have changed. And they're saying, we want to go the whole way. We want to regain all of our territory. It's at this moment that things change for the West because their ultimate interests are not the same. The Europeans say, no, 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 we want a ceasefire as soon as possible. This is France, Germany, and Italy are all in lockstep over this. We want to stop the fighting. It's couched in this high-minded rhetoric, but behind the high-minded rhetoric is low-minded cunning national interests, which is how the world really works. Again, with the curtain back, we should talk very forthrightly about how things really work, and every country has their own interests. The interest for the Europeans, if Ukraine goes under the offensive, and the interest for the Americans and the West, the Eastern Europeans, and let's divide Europe, East Europe and Poland want rollback, agree with the Ukrainians. Now's the chance to thwack the Russians when they're down. They deserve it. And let's do what Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said. Let's degrade the Russian ability to ever do this again. The Russians have overextended, so let's thwack them so that they can't do it again. From the point of view of Poland, this makes sense in national interest terms. From the point of view of the United States, to degrade an enemy great power when they've overreached makes perfect sense. From the point of view of the Anglosphere, it makes perfect sense if you're in the UK. This makes perfect sense. But from the point of view of a German, a French politician, or an Italian, it does not. Why? Because in interest terms, the longer the war goes, the worse things are from you. Already they have to, the, the huge disruption of the Western European energy supply based on their feckless, stupid, can't be overrated how dumb they were, energy policy. Again, I played a war game for the European Commission in the early 20 aughts where it came to the simple conclusion you should diversify your source of supply because it matters where you get your energy from. And they said, no, 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 it doesn't really. There is no real political risk and the Russian gas is closer and thus cheaper. And of course, this is not true. And we've just found this out to everybody's 
uh, annoyance now and everybody's chagrin when they've woken up and seen that getting the gas from the United States and Russia isn't the same because the security of supply isn't the same. So there's a huge energy disruption that they'd like to end if possible so they could slowly wean themselves off of Russia and Russian gas without having the threat of the Russians stopping the, the flow at any moment. They want the sort of Damocles removed from their head. Also, this is the, the, the Russians actually trade with the Europeans. The United States has almost no trade with the Russians. The British have already ripped the Band-Aid in terms of funding oligarchs. That's already been done. But the Europeans have long-standing trade ties with Russia that have been utterly you know, culled into nothing. And they don't want that to continue because that hurts them. And then you have the fact that the Russians are blockading food supplies in the port of Odessa, which affects Europe and North Africa more than anybody else. So you have food supply disruptions, energy supplies disruptions, trade disruptions, and a fire on your doorstep. Obviously, your reaction is, let's put the fire out as fast as we possibly can. So they care less about the ultimate justice of the Ukrainian cause and more about their own national interests. Also, from the French Gaullist point of view, Russia is going to remain a great power. In fact, a humiliated great power now might just be the time to make overtures to them to try to change their behavior. This is how French Gaullists have thought since de Gaulle himself, where he's, this has never worked, but the French Gaullists have always been tempted by this, as have the Germans by their crazy Ostpolitik strategy, where I lived there for many years, they seriously think they helped win the Cold War by trading more with the Soviets when all they did was enrich themselves. But such are the delusions of the German elite. And for all these practical reasons, though, of trade, of energy dislocation, of food dislocation, of a fire next door, the EU and the dominated by the Western Europeans, France, Germany, and Italy, want to put the fire out as fast as they can. That is not the position for, again, interest-based reasons of the United States, the Anglosphere, and the UK in particular, and Eastern Europe. And so if the Ukrainians manage to go on the offensive, as looks likely in the summer at some point, there is going to be a giant divergence because if the Ukrainians manage to push the Russians back to the boundaries of the Donbass, the pre-war boundaries and the boundary of Crimea, the Europeans will say enough's enough. And in their favor will be the argument that a humiliated, desperately cornered Putin with nothing to lose is more likely to do something crazy and expand the war through the use of chemical weapons or even tactical nuclear weapons, which from the European point of view is a nightmare, and rightly so. And that's the, the ultimate card strategically they have to play is to say enough is enough, you don't corner superpowers with nuclear weapons and don't give them a way out, or you're giving yourself a world of hurt. But beneath that perfectly rational strategic calculation lies these national interest calculations that drive how Europe thinks. On the other hand, the Americans and the Anglos here have very different calculations that also make perfect sense. In other words, our interests don't line up over Ukraine if Ukraine goes on the offensive. So up to now, everything's been hunky-dory, but things change. And the underlying differences of interest between the European Union and the Anglosphere United States are going to make things go back to the way they were before the war. And there's going to be a real divergence in the West of opinion about what to do when improbably the Ukrainians begin to win. And that's the seat I want to leave you with. Again, you heard it here first. We're ahead of the curve. 
Uh, thanks to everybody who's worked so hard at the firm on getting our Ukraine policy up to now pretty much perfect. I couldn't be prouder of you. But we want to stay ahead of the curve. There's always another challenge in political risk. And now it's to talk to you about what comes next. As President Bartlett said in the West Wing, what's next? And what's next is a coming Western divergence over the improbable success of Ukraine. You heard it here first. For those of you who have enjoyed this, please do subscribe. Again, we've doubled our subscriptions in the last month. I assume it's because of our fantastic coverage of both inflation getting out of hand, the Ukraine war, and that we now live not in the age of globalization where political risk didn't matter, but in a new age of geopolitical uncertainty where we are needed and we are here for the teachable moment to help businesses and governments make sense of things. Please do subscribe. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking $70 a year. It's half an espresso a day. And as you all know, I have a pot of espresso a day. So this is well within anybody's uh, shopping list. And if you think that we're worth it, half an espresso a day when we give you the foreign policy vlog on Monday, the culture section on Tuesday. We just finished the Spaghetti Westerns. We're moving on to albums you must listen to before you die, starting with Arthur Lee and Love's Fabulous Forever Changes next week. We give you Around the World in 20 Minutes, the flagship on Wednesday. Thursday is my friend JL Ryder doing the Society page. And Friday, my friend Publius is doing the politics. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed all this. We've become a full-fledged global newspaper. We are thrilled to be spending so much time on this, but we need simply $70 a year, and we promise to keep them coming. Hope you enjoyed this. Have a great day, and on to the next.